0: Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage.
1: Hello. <gasps>
2: He's here.
1: <laughs> here I am. Look at you. Now, we, this is just a podcast. There's no, you're not going to be That's seeing That's
0: exactly me. right. I it's mean, just... I don't
1: mind. I don't care what I look like. It's just that suddenly, Steph, I saw you two looking gorgeous with your good light, and I'm sitting here on my bed.
0: Welcome to the podcast, two-time Tony nominee, Gavin Lee, who is is highfalutin because he has a British accent and we're now (laughs) going to have to be smarter than we really are just to even keep up with this witty friend. Gavin Lee to stage. Gavin to the stage. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Um, Gavin, I'm quickly going to pass the torch to my friend, Mary Lee, whom I don't believe you've met in person, but she has a very, very intimate story and connection with you that right away, I want her to share.
1: Okay. Well, it's so
2: good to meet you and thank you so much (laughs) for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. But I have to tell you this story. So it was a summer that my son turned five. He had just had a birthday and my husband was traveling. And so last minute I thought, okay, let's just jump on a train from Boston and we're going to go to New York City and we're going to see our very first Broadway show and I'll show you where I used to live and, of course, the show was Mary Poppins. Uh-huh. So we are driving into the train station and you know how little kids are, right? Everything is so new to them. So to them, everything is kind of magical, right? So he sees the Tobin Bridge in the distance and he thinks, Mom, it's a Ferris wheel and it looks like it's chasing after the car and, you know, then he's on the train and he, and the train master says... Um, Uh, Oh, we're going 150 miles an hour, folks. This is what it feels like. And my son says, oh, I wonder if Lightning McQueen could catch us, you know. (laughs) So like moms do, I was saying, well, honey, you know, eyes play tricks and that's just a cartoon. And of course, I'm teaching, right? But then we get to New York and we get to Mary Poppins. His favorite part of the movie had always been the rooftop dance. So when you came out and you did your tap dance, he couldn't believe his eyes. (laughs) And it sort of created this mood of how the world really can be magical, which I think is the whole point of the show, right? So we're in the middle of Times Square heading home, and it's nighttime and it's dark, and we're holding hands, and he looks up at the sky and he's like, Mom, I didn't know you lived in a carnival. Us. So then <laughs> we're heading back home, and the whole train ride home he spent looking out the train window on the rooftops searching for Bert. And so he was saying, Mom, I see him. And by the end, I stopped correcting, and I was like, I see him too, baby. I see him too.
1: Oh my gosh. So Isn't lovely. that, though, the reason, mm-hmm. the main thing I think that I give back? I don't, you know, I'm not one of these people where i give give loads of time and money and things like that to to the world but as an actor i think i can i can and i'm not the type to I say i feel proud ever but i do feel proud that if just one kid in the audience when you're doing a show their heart is exploding and their face is a beam of light because of what you as an actor along with all the other different cogs of the theatre are doing up on that stage as making them just light up inside then yeah. that is such a reward and you go oh my gosh i'm giving this kid something and uh, for that show of course i was so lucky i always say a lot of people say my favorite part of mary Poppins is when you tap dance on the ceiling mm-hmm. and i would always just say i was the lucky actor that got to originate that role and get to do that trick. Because, in, in you know, it's basically, it was a trick. It was, can you be attached to a harness, walk up the side of the proscenium arch and tap dance upside down? And yes, it took a lot of practice. But in the end, that was people's favorite bit. And I was, again, I was the cog that made all that happen. I just feel very lucky that I got to do that. But one thing I was envious of was um, the, whoever the actual actress was playing Mary Poppins, You'll remember at the end of the show, she flies across the stage, but then right at the end, she starts flying out into the audience Mm -hmm. and they would all say their heart would just grow bigger every time they flew out as Mary Poppins at the end because they saw all these kids' faces just bright and wide-eyed and, oh my gosh, Mary Poppins is flying over my head. And I was always envious that I knew the kids' faces were doing the same for what I was doing, but I was you couldn't I was, witness it. I was on stage. So you know that. I couldn't I couldn't see it. But she was out in the audience giving that light and warmth and joy to all those young faces and and older faces because you know that, that show just brought out the childhood in everyone who was yeah. in it and certainly everyone who was watching it. Now,
0: yeah. if we were to go back, though, to five-year-old Gavin, right? Were <laughs> you already... Did your parents take you to see theatre in London? Did Were you already uh, in tap classes? Like, what did that little person look like? And was the performing arts or performing live on your radar at all when you were that age?
1: Really There was nothing on my radar till I was perhaps nine, nine years old. My sister was older than me. She went to dance class because she was a a shy little girl. And so her regular teacher said to my mom, why don't you put her in ballet class? because it might bring her out of a shell. And I was, I always say this, I was like Mike from the chorus line saying, <laughs> I'm watching this a oh, <laughs> I can, I do, can that. do that.
0: Exactly. Oh. So
1: she'd come home. I'd say, what did you do today? what did you do today? Annoy, annoy, annoy. And she'd show me and I'd learn it. And eventually my mum was like, where do you want to go? And showing my age, this was 1980. My very first class that I ever joined was disco dancing. <laughs> It was a disco dancing class. Oh, come and on. And I love the Snoopy and the bus stop, all these little routines that, uh, that uh, John Travolta and the like were doing. Um, yes. oh, I see it about. now.
0: You, Donna Summer, it, she uh, lives in you. She lives, <laughs> she lives in you, Gavin Lee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more John Travolta in the white suit, but okay, Donna Summer, <laughs> <bye>. <laughs> The very first big show I remember, we went down to London. I grew up two hours um, east of London. And you've got to remember, because England's so small, two-hour drive is, is long. And many nice. people in my school had never been to London. Wow. Even though I'm sure Americans are like, what? It's two hours away. It's nothing. And, and ra- you know, after you know, years later, touring the States and, and driving for 24 hours to get to the next city for the show is nothing. But two hours. But back then it was a big deal to go down to London and we went to the Palladium, which is one of the biggest and best theatres in London. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was Singing in the Rain with Tommy Steele, who was a a big British star in the 60s because of Half a Sixpence and other movies and a pop star. And he was starring in Singing in the Rain, playing the Don, uh, the Gene Kelly role. Um,
0: Don Lockwood.
1: uh, Don Lockwood, yes. Sorry, I was then thinking of Donald O'Connor. I'm thinking, not Donald O'Connor, Gene <laughs> Kelly. Idiot. Um, <laughs> when, I mean, the whole show was amazing because it was a big budget show. But when he started doing the Singing the Rain number and the rain was falling on him yeah. and Tommy was known for this big, cheesy grin that he has and he, he just stood there and the rain was pouring down on him and he's singing, do, 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 do. I was just like, he's getting rained on inside. I was magic. about 11 years old. You're magic, it's magic. couldn't believe it. And I'm very happy to say one one of my many favourite moments of being an actor is many years later, I got to play Don Lockwood in a regional production of Singing in the Rain. And during the tech, the first time they said, okay, we're going to do the Singing in the Rain number, Gavin. And all the cast came you know, out to watch because they wanted to see it. You know, and, and it wasn't a big budget production, but they still managed to have the rain and just singing do do do, do with an umbrella. Uh. And it's rain. You're on a stage full circle inside, fully closed, and you're and it's okay that you're getting drenched, and you get to sing and dance your heart out. And you're right; it's the the magic of theater. What what you can do in that little box of the proscenium mm-hmm. arch, you can make people believe anything. And the amazing thing is that. You can feel it as well because it's not, you can make anything happen on screen on the TV or in a movie, but to be able to do the magic that the technical people can do. Mm-hmm. And then you add on top the lighting and the sound and the makeup and the costumes. And then the actors and the last thing, all those things coming together to make magic yeah, um, is just the best thing in the world. And it's, it's still so thrilling to me when, I go to a show and I sit down and I see something I've never seen before.
0: And when you're singing "Dooby doo Do and it's raining on you, what's going through your mind in that stage of your career and your life?
1: I mean, before that show, I had been in the ensemble of a couple of West End shows. I... Um, spent a lot of time with Crazy for You, the original production. The Sadie Sturman, <gasps> My production. That was the production. first
0: Broadway show I ever saw, oh. and boy, did it! It shook me to my core to see slap that bass with the girls yep. being yep. used as the bass. I mean, I sat in the theater, and I—I I don't know. I think it was nineteen or twenty when I finally got to see a show in New York, and I just went. <gasps> I can't be- again. I can't believe they're yeah. doing that with the human body and clever yep. choreography yep. and this underscoring. For me, I had to get to New York City because of that show. What a gift to be part I mean, of that company. I
1: mean, yeah, to be in that—that that was my first, you know, a, being in an original cast. Um, <sighs> but, but anyway, my point is just because I could talk about Crazy for You and what and what the path of that sent me on. Um, my point was I got to play that lead role in that. But after that, I had some other understudying things and singing in Lorraine, in a way, was the first time I got offered a job outright. So that's a thrill as an actor. Yeah. I don't have to audition. You're offering me Don Lockwood in, at the Leicester Hay Market, which was a great theatre in, in England. He'd seen me in Crazy For You playing the lead. Yeah. And and so singing Rain when I'm standing there getting rained on for the first time in tech, it's kind of the first thought is like, oh my gosh, how lucky am I? Mm. And the second thing is, it certainly wasn't, I suppose it was was like, this could be it. Mm. This could be the pinnacle. It certainly wasn't, okay, I'm doing this. Things are only going to get better. Mm. I've always been very much feet on the ground. And now even 30 years later, your feet have to be on the ground because after all that I've done, you know before the pandemic there were not jobs like people So what you're telling me doors. you have
0: to audition people just oh. don't throw the roles at you gather <laughs> <anymore>. uh,
1: it's <laughs> happened you know i think it's happened two or three times one yeah, of them same. being singing <laughs> in the right ra- thing in the rain it you still oh i've got to think of a song and how mm. am i going to impress the people and and um yeah so singing in the rain was a pretty big deal because not only it was that part, and that was the first show I really saw and fell in love with theatre, but also it just got offered to me, and wowzers! Yeah, that you had you had a pick. Like you've been offered three jobs, which one are you going to take? I mean, that's so, <laughs> that's happened to me like once. I'd been out of work a whole year. I came back from, I'd finished Mary Poppins, which was an eight-year job. I got offered Top Hat, which was the Fred Astaire musical um, Mm -hmm. in London. Went back, did that, an amazing role to play. Came back here and then didn't work for a year, whole year. And that's when my feet, after the eight years of Mary Poppins uh, being on Cloud Nine, and then getting offered Top Hat, a big West End show that won the uh, Olivier that year, feet up in the clouds. It was suddenly like poof, crashed down to earth. Oh, I haven't had a job for a year. Yeah. And again, my point is, I then got a workshop, which was six weeks, and I got a little TV job that lasted six weeks, and they both clashed. And I had to oh. turn, turn mine uh, down. And you're like, I've had nothing all year. I have two two jobs that last six weeks each. It's the same six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, no! <laughs> So
0: you're raised in outside of London, you Uh then primarily start working in London, Um, then a glorious partner, woman, collaborator enters your life. (laughs) She is American, but you meet her in London. Do I have that right?
1: That's correct. So my beautiful, gorgeous wife, uh, wife of 16 years this September, um, we met um in london she's a opera singer in the midwest like uh, high school she's doing the musicals she's singing she's in choir she loves theater they go to, to minneapolis whenever they can to see Ooh. les mis to see uh-huh. see joseph to see all those 90s shows mm-hmm. um 80s shows that are touring in the 90s i mean um she doesn't really know what she's gonna do because um in the midwest not many people from her tiny little town go off and be actors that make mm-hmm. money you know So she goes to college in Mankato, and she's not even majoring in music or theatre, but she's she's auditioning and getting the roles in all the theatre department shows. So thank God for one of her professors. And she says, you need to go and train in this. You need to go to New York or you need to go to London. And Emily, my wife, had never been to New York. She'd been to London with her high school choir when she was 15, so she chose London. So her and her dad went on a flight to London, auditioned for three or four drama schools and got into one. And then she had three glorious years being a British, uh, an American student in a British theater college. And I actually came in to her college and choreographed her, her year's graduation show, like the showcase they do in front of the agents. Sure. Wow. Um, and I have to say, we—I didn't ask her out until the graduation was over. She graduated. <laughs> but
2: happening. did you notice her? Did you think, "Ooh, she's beautiful"? Like, was it one of those she, things you sort of saw her across the room and said, "Oh, I can't wait for graduation day"?
1: <laughs> thank, 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 God! I have to say, on day one, they all come in. We all me and the director of the showcase. We introduced ourselves because you know we're not teachers. We just—they just hire us to come in to do the one showcase so we were working with them you know for the month on all their pieces all their songs and their dances and things we started dating and then within about a year we moved in together and only a few months after we moved in together and we were really like solidly this is it we're together and by then of course emma graduated and she was working and she was doing the tour of kiss me kate uh, the michael blakemore wow. tour of kiss me kate understudying kate uh, on the uk tour and that's when I auditioned for Mary Poppins, and she's kind of been there from just before I kind of felt like I went a couple of rungs up the ladder of okay. the, you know, like suddenly I I got a role that I got to originate. It was a big, a very big deal to get to create a role from scratch, and so she's been there from the beginning. and And I have to say, uh, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here if I. Hadn't married Emily, who was American, and we got our act together and I got my visa. The Mary Poppins opened in London and we'd done two years and they were auditioning for the Broadway cast. And they told me and uh, the girl playing Mary Poppins at the time, you're the benchmarks, but we're looking for every character. We're looking. F- we're looking for all the roles in. So America. you didn't
0: have first right of refusal oh, no, overseas no. over the pond, no. as they say. No, I, cer-
1: I certainly didn't. That is that's something, Steph. You learn later on when you've perhaps originated a couple of roles that you can get that sort of thing in your contract. I feel very lucky. Of course, I feel lucky that I have Emily in my life. But an an added bonus was that she was American. We got my green card through her. So when the opportunity came up and they auditioned for everyone in on Broadway, they knew that they didn't have to finagle any kind of visa for me because I had I was allowed to work in America. So who knows? I like to think I was so wonderful in the role they would have brought me anyway and they would have got me a visa. But I'll never know that. And I have to thank my lucky stars that my wife is American. And so. I was able to come and work here. And so she's a big reason, obviously, while we're still here now. That's amazing. What was was happening
0: with her career at the time? And was that a discussion? Had she finished the tour of Kiss Me Kate? Did you guys see it as a blip on the screen or did you see it as an indefinite move? Like what was that discussion looking like?
1: Well, it it was a sacrifice for her. So she was doing the Kiss Me Kate tour while when I then opened with Mary Poppins. And then during my second year of Mary Poppins in London, she got into Phantom in the West End. So for her, it was a big deal. It was her first West End show. Um, She was understudying Madame Giry. In that year that she did it, she went on for quite a few months playing Madame Giry. So she was getting known by all the casting directors in London. She She was there. She'd arrived. She was in the West End. And me getting offered Bert in Mary Poppins on Broadway meant you've got to leave your job. So the lucky thing was, of course, Mary Poppins is, as well as Disney, is a Cameron Macintosh production. And of course, Phantom of the Opera is a Cameron Macintosh production. So Camera Cameron producers. Macintosh team, they already knew me and they already knew my wife. Mm-hmm. So it was okay when we said, oh my gosh, we're so grateful you're going to let me come to Broadway, but Emily's going to have to leave the show earlier. And they were like, that's fine. That's fine. We're sad to lose her. And and it was it was hard for Emily because I, in a way, dragged her to New York. There wasn't a lot I could do to push her career forward in New York. Mm-hmm. She didn't know how it all worked in New York. I didn't need to know how it worked in New York right. because I was coming with a great, big, flashy job. And my British agent set me up with some American agents and I had my pick. But so wasn't there was, any was world
2: hard. where you could in your negotiations, say, is there a way to get my wife from Phantom in the West End into Phantom in New York? Or, um,
1: Well, when it's your first of anything, you're bringing me and only me over to Broadway. You're going to put me up in an apartment. You're going to get me a car home from the theater. I mean, things that I've never had before. Mm-hmm. I wasn't about to say, well, I'm only coming if my wife <laughs> can be in Phantom on Broadway. It's right. like, there wasn't even a just. Dis- there was. It, there's no way I would have said, "Well, this, here's something extra I'm going to need," because uh, right. we were just so grateful that we were going to go on this amazing journey, which was Broadway in lights. This place that we both never thought we would ever get to experience.
2: Can you compare but, the differences between working in the West End and working in New York on Broadway?
1: I mean, initially it all felt different and new and more sparkly and more more lights because, you know, Times Square. When you get down to the nitty-gritty of just doing the show day by day, it's exactly the same. Mm. All the theatres in the West End and Broadway are old and smelly <laughs> and they've got rats and the <laughs> backstages are horrible. Oh, no. it's, it's, <laughs> it's all so part of the charm. It's the same. And sure. after six months, half of the cut, some of the cast are notoriously bored and not giving 100% and you're bitching about them. Apart from the accents, I feel like the work ethic is almost the same. The talent I feel is the same, but it's just more cool about saying, oh, I'm on Broadway.
0: I cannot speak to being on stage per se as an artist. I've done like a a West End cabaret or my solo show in the West End. But I will say this, as an audience member, I certainly can tell the difference. I remember going yes. and seeing War Horse. You want to talk about the magic of the puppetry and suspending your disbelief, seeing the humans within the horse and the puppets and whatnot. But I was so engaged and engrossed that when the curtain call came, I was on my feet, like clapping my hands. Like I was like, in a Mets game. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm looking around going, what the hell is wrong with these people? So I will attest that when you're doing a show on Broadway and the energy that you're getting back yes. and the sort of communication that you're having between the audience and the actor is far different. At least it feels that way as a spectator, right? Uh-huh. Than when you're in the West end. So did you notice that, that it's like a much more of a, a communal and excitable experience with the audiences on Broadway?
1: Yeah. And to generalize, which I shouldn't. I, I just I, I, too. I, would, I apologize. Yes, I, yes. But I, this is even a bigger, more generalization that might insult people. But I'd say Americans aren't afraid to be loud. <laughs> well, that's true. It's in, <laughs> not in, in, in that, that true in everyday life. It's like, and as an actor, mm-hmm. I'm completely happy to have an audience full of Americans that want to stand up, laugh and clap me at the end. Because yeah. that's me being an. I want to come on stage at the end after doing what I've done and sweated and hopefully left my heart on the stage and have everyone out there stand up and I can visually see that, oh, you thought I was great. Yeah. Because they're cheering <laughs> and they're standing up much, of course. much more than I come out and I'm exhausted and I gave it my all and you're just clapping politely. Yeah. Then I'm like, oh, well, so do you. <laughs> you know, but. Yeah. But cats. on
0: the other side, right? Pirate Queen, huge. Epic! I was yep. exhausted. Twenty-three songs. Just ugh, I talk about leaving it all on the stage. I did that, yeah. and then the, the audience would applaud, and I'd be inside my head. I was like, and the crowd goes mild because <laughs> it just was like, yay! You did that. Good for you.
2: You did that. But... did your kids see you as Bert?
1: I'm just regret that eight years of my life was Mary Poppins, and my kids came along in the last two years. So she was oh, way too young yeah. to see the show. She did actually come and see me and Em playing in the Broadway production of Mary Poppins in our last week before I left for us to go back to London to do Top Hat. So she was about two and she saw the show. She can't obviously remember it, but I do love that they came to see the Grinch, like Daddy yes. playing. Yeah that disgusting, despicable, green monster that hated everyone and scared the children in the audience. I they're too, I guess they're too young to even be proud of Daddy. And Mm. it's just, it's just what Daddy does. It's his job. Even when Daddy was in SpongeBob, you know, of course, what kid isn't going to enjoy coming to watch that show? It was so so inventive and amazing to watch for kids and adults with such a good message and good storylines and great songs. So yes, they came to see SpongeBob on Broadway probably four or five times.
0: They filmed the original company. Um, Talk a little bit about that, knowing that SpongeBob will live forever because it has uh, been documented on film. Is it still streaming now? It's It's still available now. Yes.
1: That is one of the, I say, I mean, the SpongeBob job was amazing and it was amazing because I always, always take my hat off to Tina Landau. She was the director and she was the creator of this version of SpongeBob, this immersive, live, real human beings playing the characters because she was such an amazing leader. That's why it was such a wonderful experience. And one of my favorite points of that whole experience was we closed the show on Broadway, and we all felt that we closed too early. We were you did, yeah. We were, kick, we were kicked out of the Palace because they had some agreement, like when they got the money, millions they needed to do that renovation. That is They're gonna still make going a on. Mall there.
0: Out of it, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They, they
1: were gonna, they could kick us out if we went under the the amount you have yeah. to sell every week and all those boring Broadway contract things. So we were all very sad because this was our baby, and it was Tina's baby. Um, to get an email. A whole year after you've closed the show on Broadway and the email's like, this is Susan Vargo, the producer. We've got some excited news. Nickelodeon have decided they want to document the show. So what do you feel about all getting together again for two weeks, rehearsing and doing the show again so we can film it?
0: But you just mentioned now the palace is under construction to build, you know, whatever they're building within the building and under the building, under the theater. So where did you have to go? And what was that about? Like, where did the company come together to film this?
1: So because um, the producer, you know, she basically had a had this big check from Nickelodeon, which must have been millions, because by then the tour was going on with all the set. And all the costumes and all the wigs, and all the shoes.
0: Oh wow. So
1: it was like Nickelodeon were willing to build this from scratch. And you know a Broadway show costs upwards of 10 million, oh, if not 15 yeah. million. There's there's a few theaters that have the space and the mm-hmm. knowledge and the, the wardrobe department and the set building department that can build build it, make it for you. And there, none of those were available for the time slot that the creative team had. So we end up rehearsing for two weeks in new york and i was going to tell you my favorite point of that whole experience was after a whole year away from broadway walking into that rehearsal room on day one Mm. and just seeing everyone and going what are we doing we're all back together because you know you finish a show (laughs) on broadway or any show in any theater you're never going to be with that group of people again so we did two weeks rehearsal there we all flew to heathrow in london we all and and so a lot of the um, a lot of the cast American are like oh, we're gonna go and get and film it in a in a West End theater because oh, you know, for a lot of Americans it's like thrilling. I'm oh, gonna cool. get to go to the West End yeah. but it was like I knew I was like uh uh-huh, I'm sorry guys it's not what you think <laughs> we we all got on a coach so like two coaches <laughs> drove for four hours to almost like the southwest tip of England to Plymouth where the Plymouth Theatre Royal is a theatre that does lots of tryouts for the West End. So it basically that theatre had the availability and the people to be able to build the whole thing. And we Mm -hmm. filmed it with half of the seats taken out because there were 15 cameras everywhere to film the theatrical version of SpongeBob. And going back to what we were saying about Broadway, uh, American audiences and British audiences, by the end of SpongeBob on Broadway, we had got so used Spoiled. to you were, yeah. fans going crazy <laughs> because we had the best, most amazing Spongebob fans for the Spongebob musical that came hundreds of times. They knew every joke, they, they applauded, they screamed at everything. So to then go to Plymouth, England, you know, they've not had Spongebob. <laughs> we weren't getting any of our reactions. We were like, Oh gosh, It's dead. But the magic—the magic of editing—and that they were able to, you know, put the uh, put more applause on and more cheers than they actually were because. It wasn't fake, you know. If you'd seen the show on Broadway, you would have seen that reaction we got. Oh, yeah. So they just enhanced, like they do with all um, film editing.
0: For the listeners that didn't see it, so you played Squidward, and you have this massive tap number. It's kind of yeah. like the eleven o'clock number of the show, but not yep, a big yep. belter. It's, and you're tapping with four legs, right? Yes.
1: So those- I'm in. I'm in rehearsals. And um they've built me these kind of you know crappy pair of legs. They actually bought me two pairs of jeans and sewed them together, butt to butt. One pair of jeans had a pair of false legs in with shoes on the end. And then I just I stepped into the front pair of jeans. Right. Um they weren't great, you know, they weren't great versions, they were just to rehearse. But Chris Catelli, our gorgeous choreographer that Steph, you know very well from the share show, brilliant choreographer, he was very much um I don't know what you can do with because they wanted me for my tap number to have four tap shoes on. They could have very easily, I could have just had my two tap shoes on and the back feet could have had regular shoes and not made a noise. But Chris Cotelli was like, no, let's see what we can do with four tap shoes on. He <laughs> was very gracious and I'm very grateful that he's a giving choreographer. That was like, go into a room on your own, work out in front of a mirror what the heck you can do, what noises you can make, work out a tap solo. And then come and show me. And so I did that. And then, of course, him being the choreographer, then tweaked it, made it yeah. better. And it got incorporated into the, ta- into the whole number.
0: The show and, stopped with how crazy the audience went it, for that magic. That was magic.
1: It was magic. And again, again, I'd come out of stage door and just like Bert, the chimney sweep tap dancing upside down. I'd come out and the audience members would go, that was my favourite part of the show. Your number was my favourite part of the show. Your number, they'd point to me. And I'm always very feet on the ground and gracious that that's because I'm the lucky guy that got to wear David Zinn's ridiculous legs that looked so brilliant. I'm the lucky guy that got to sing that great song written by They Might Be Giants. And I'm the lucky guy that got to do the script written by Carl Jarrett. And directed by Tina Landau, that made Squidward an arc in the Mm. storyline. Where by the time I sung my song, the audience were begging for Squidward to get his moment in the limelight. I'm just so grateful. I always want to make sure people realize that the tap dancing upside down and the tap dancing with four legs. How lucky was I that I got that part and I got to do that trick that you now think is so cool?
0: I took such pride as an artist to form a character and have that backstory and yeah. have like the continuation of her story after you take your bow. And, and somebody broke it down to me and I was a little prickly at first when they mentioned it. But they said, with all due respect, nobody sees all that. Nobody even remembers all that. They remember moments it's all about a moment in that story and you don't want to accept that as an artist because you really do fine-tune and take care and every scene is like a baby for you and you want to just mold it with nuance but for the person who is taking in all of the spectacle and all you know you're All of your senses are being assaulted at some point during the show that all they can leave with is a moment or two that really, really touched them. You have this gorgeous resume of these incredible
2: theatrical moments. But the truth is, Stephanie, those moments can't be read and felt as real unless you bring all of that work and all of that backstory. That's what makes it real. And that's what they feel. If you go out and try to create a moment, it will actually fall quite flat. You're right. You're but, right. But, but the, it's and, the and, work that you brought in and the, and the energy and the love and the passion from, from not just you, but from everybody around you who's helping you build that moment. That's right. Yeah, that's, what t- that's what creates that's it. That's how it the lands. audience knows if it's, if it's genuine or not. What was it like to spend the day with Dick Van Dyke?
1: Oh, oh it was awesome. In my sixth year of Mary Poppins, we go to the Armisen in Los Angeles and perform the show there. And, of course, on opening night, who is in the third-row centre. Uh. So exciting. Uh, I don't even remember, but at the very top of the show, the curtain goes out mm-hmm. and there's all the chim- it's all like a chimney scape and there's smoke everywhere and everyone is standing, like, in profile in black, all the characters from the show, like they're almost like they're chimney, chimney yeah. tops. And I, not, you see my chimney brush, dee, 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 like coming through the smoke. And I come up and I look over the rooftops of London and saying, wind's in the east, there's a mist coming in. And of course, as I'm looking out, immediately I'm like, well, I'm gonna see where he is immediately. <laughs> and it's like there was this aura of light on him. I'm sure it wasn't, but in my eyes, I was like, bing there he is. Oh! <laughs> and he's that he's sitting there with his white hair, you know, beaming, you know, because what Dick Van Dyke's always beaming is just such a fantastically happy bloke. And I guess after that opening and me seeing him there, I kind of ignored him for the rest of the show. You know, I was like, I'm going to get on with my version of Bert. I'm not going to think about the Bert that's sitting there. But then I um, really, I was really lucky in that I knew that at the end of the show, he was willing to come up on stage because six years earlier, Julie Andrews had come to a gala performance in London and she'd come on stage and um, been very gracious in kind of saying, she is Mary Poppins, but now it's time for her to hand the. She said, "I think she said, hand the parrot head umbrella to the next oh. generation of Mary Poppins, or something like something wonderful like that." So yes, he was very gracious. Of course, he was so gracious about how he loved the show, and then Disney was so kind; they arranged for me and him to have dinner at uh, lunch together huh. at the Walt Disney Studios, you- and they kind of sprung it on me. Entertainment Tonight, the TV show, I saw turned that. up. <laughs> and,
0: and, and, yeah. and I
1: they, they thought it would be cool, the two birds, you know, the two Berts together. Um, and we got there. So I'm ready to, you know, we're gonna have a little, a little interview at the end of our lunch. And they put mics on us and the cameraman's there, and the sound guy, and they went, and and I'm like, I'm looking around, like, so where's the interviewer? And they go, Okay, Gab, so what we thought was it's gonna be about 10 minutes long. Um, we thought we could start here where Dick Van Dyke's got his handprints like on the wall. There's all these handprints. We could start here because it's, you know, and you can ask him about this. Then we'll walk down Goofy Lane or whatever it's called. (laughs) Yeah. Down to the Studio 6 which or whichever one where they did most of the filming. And there's a plaque of Julie Andrews dedication plaque there. And we'll finish the interview there. And I'm like, uh, oh, I'm interviewing Dick. I'm not an interviewer. So I was I was like, oh my God, you could have let me know. So I'm trying to just keep the conversation going and ask him things. And he's an amazing person. And, and at the lunch, you know, he would talk about everything, but a couple of his answers were like, so Dick, what's it like being back here at the studios? It's really good. <laughs> and Can I'm you like, elaborate? And I'm like, I'm not an interviewer, so I haven't got the next question ready. So they edited it. it ended up being probably like a two, two minute piece on entertainment tonight and they edited it. But at the time I was like, I'm not an interviewer and I don't want to be. And I wish you'd give me some notice, but, um, but yeah. And then he even came back about a month later. We played the Arminson in Los Angeles for three months and he agreed to come back a month later. And I don't know if your listeners will remember this, but in the movie, as well as being Bert, he plays um, Mr. Dawes, who is the, Old old bank manager, and oh, in the sure, movie, sure, sure. Yeah. in the movie he's got a white wig on and he's playing an eighty year old. Yeah. Well, of course, we don't have a Mr. Dawes in the stage version. There's a bank manager, but it's not Mr. Dawes. So they, in the bank scene at the end um, with George Banks, they just adapted the script a little bit, and they have these massive bank doors at the back, massive set opens, and the doors open, um, and they said, "Oh, uh, the chairman, Mr. Dawes, is here. He'd like to meet you, George." And so Dick Van Dyke is uh, um there, the doors open, and he's playing Mr. Doors. And of course, he made a comment to us all. Of course, he doesn't need the white wig anymore. He's got the white hair, he is 80. Um, and he didn't have any lines, he just waddled on with a cane. Um, and it took the audience a little while to work it out. he didn't announce it in the middle uh, of, mu- the so of the musical of you could see they were all like oh my God, I think that's Dick Van Dyke. And he just, wow. he just, you know how he does his pratfalls, yep. you know, so he was wobbling around and all the other bank people in the scene would like, oh, are you okay, Mr. Dawes? And like <laughs> hold him up. He didn't even have any, he had like one, like put one line in for him, but the audience went crazy and anyone who wasn't in, the, in that scene, like me, uh, in the wings, just crying oh. with happiness and laughter that Dick Van Dyke had decided to come on our stage and be part of our show. And another one in the list of what's your most memorable moment. I've had so many and that's just another one I love to tell.
0: And now our five questions. Tell us something surprising about yourself, something that most people may not know.
1: I'm pretty handy with a paintbrush or a screwdriver or a uh, a circular saw. One of my favorite things is when my wife, Emily, says, I've got a job for you. I love it. I'm quite handy around the house. And I think to look at me, you think, oh, he's just a tall, lanky British geek.
2: Question number two. What is your good luck charm or ritual and why?
1: Don't have one. Sorry to be boring. Nothing. That's really... There's nothing. No, I don't have a certain warm-up. I don't have um, lucky gonks that I have sitting on my dressing room table.
0: Okay, Gav, what would you tell your 20-year-old self?
1: When I was uh, in high school, we had one um, lesson a week, which was called computer studies. <laughs> and we went to the computer studies room where there were six computers <laughs> and three students shared each computer. And we did, I don't know what we did. We moved a a line across the screen. That's what we did. That's the extent of my computer studies. Mm -hmm. I then became an actor and never saw a computer again. If (laughs) I hadn't, if my wife, if we hadn't got together and she moved in, I don't know if I'd I'd have a computer now. Thank God she came with a computer. I am pathetic. I cannot do a thing. And so i would go back to my 20 year old self and say get yourself into a computer class
2: okay question number four if you could have any talent or ability what would it be aside from computer engineering
1: (laughs) um oh it's easy i wish with a passion that my parents had made me learn piano i could honestly sit for eight hours and watch a pianist's hands on a piano Mm -hmm. It's so remarkable to me.
0: Uh, (laughs) If you were a nail polish color, what color would it be? And what would the name of that color be?
1: Off the top of my head, I'm going to say, oh, my color would be jazzy red socks. (laughs) (laughs) I love um, Fred Astaire. I love uh, watching his movies. And I wrote a concert, a cabaret for myself that is just all about Fred Astaire. And it's just all the glorious Irving Berlin, Gershwin, Cole Porter songs from that era. And I've been lucky enough to play two um, two roles on the stage that were originated on film by Fred Astaire. He used to, for award ceremonies and things like that, he'd be in his in his beautiful tux, but he'd wear a little, um, he'd just have a little splash of colour. And I think I did it for my... For my first Tonys, I wore red. I wore a little red socks just in honor of him, and I'm sure no one even saw them. But I knew they were on. Perhaps if I'm ever at the Tonys again, you'll see me with one red fingernail, and that's going to be my jazzy red socks fingernail color.
0: <laughs> you are hilarious. You are inspiring, and you are such a winning gentleman and friend. So thank oh, you. Yes, thank
1: you Steph, so much. Missed- it really
2: was a pleasure.
1: Merrily it's been lovely, lovely to meet you and Steph. I hope to see you and your husband and your daughter very, very soon.
0: And now here's what struck a chord with us. That's Gavin Lee. He was the sweetest. He's a great guy all around. I mean, besides being ultra talented and and doing things with his feet only, you know, a dozen people in this entire world can do with their feet. And I'm talking about tap dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he's just a really wonderful guy. And the heart that he brings to every part. I mean, we spoke on um, him playing Squidward and the Grinch. And, you know, if you look at his whole body of career, there are a lot of, quote unquote, cartoon characters that he's played. Mm -hmm. But I think that only works if you drench it with humanity, and great heart. If you're just being silly and yucca, 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 it doesn't have the impact that Gavin is able to bring to all these characters. he,
2: He commits to finding the humanness within these cartoon characters. And that's why you're rooting for him in all of these crazy characters that he's playing. And that's why they feel believable.
0: And all drenched in this gorgeous, accent. Mm -hmm. It's really quite a package. Gavin Lee is really quite a package when you put all those puzzle pieces together.
2: Yeah. I wish I knew his wife. He, he talked about her a lot, even more than we left in. He kept going back to his lovely wife and he kept talking about how she is so supportive and she's this and she's that, and she's so talented. And she's such a great mom. And it was really cute. It was almost like we were interviewing him at certain points about his wife. We didn't leave but it you should. In.
0: Emily is um, an incredible woman and artist in her own right. And, you know, I will say that's, that strikes a chord within me every single day because um, I can recognize how, when you are in this business and your partner or your spouse or your lover, even your child, if you have somebody in your life, when you're walking the path of an artist, the the discussions are every single day and you assess and you reassess and you reassess. And, you know, even now um, he is in the UK playing Lumiere in mm-hmm. the UK and Ireland tour of Beauty and the Beast. He's gone for over a year. And I can't imagine what that discussion would look like. I know that Sebastian and I have them all the time. And regardless, if I'm the one that's getting the gig and having to go to work, or he gets the gig and has to go to work, you know, if you're the one chosen, there's there's a guilt that you carry around going, yes, I'm on a train or I'm on the subway before or at 8 a.m. in order to get to rehearsal, and I'm not home until 7 p.m. And if you're doing the show, if you're going to be gone for a good chunk of every night and the entirety of the weekend. And then when you're the one at home and your partner is going to work, you're thinking, okay, now I'm taking on the extra responsibilities of making our daily life work, all those moving parts. It's a lot. But if you have somebody who understands that, Um, and you're being truthful about what that looks like for you, then you just have to keep touching back in and saying, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling about this? What can I do to help? And I think this is why he spoke so highly of her is that together as a team, the respect that they have for each other and the respect Mm -hmm. that they have for each other's craft. And you say, okay, we can do this. It's going to be hard, but we can do this. We should do this. now let's do this. So that's where they're at. And that's the discussion they had when they were in the, on the West end and their move to come to Broadway, you know, it's It's a a constant, like I always, always juggling. Juggling, And and like I said, always reassessing always, not just once every year, this for everybody listening for an artist, golly, this happens
2: every other day, every other week, it never stops. Even for people who aren't artists, it's always important to keep in mind that every relationship, not just marriages, but even friendships, they ebb, they flow. Sometimes you're both on shore. Sometimes one of you is out to sea times when it's easier for one than the other. And then that, that counterbalances at some point. And then there are times where you meet in the middle where it's easy for both of you and you ride the wave. That's what life is. Long-term relationships are a choice, whether they're a marriage or a friendship or even your relatives, like you choose That's right. to commit someone in your life. It seems like just the way he spoke about her, that they've made the choice, you know? So right now we're not both going to ride the wave, but one of us is, and the other one will be on short sharing. And at some point that will switch.
0: The two of them are, are quite a pair. Do their children have accents? No, actually, they have very English names, but they're just these sweet, curly haired little rascal, angels slash rascals. <laughs> they're so, so fun. Here comes my little rascal now. Yes, Cookie, what do you need? Hold everybody. I'll be right back. <laughs> no, I'm not paying $9.99 for more gems. Get out of here. <gasps> okay. okay. We'll talk later. No 2.99. The great negotiator
2: over here. I love you. She's so smart. She came in with the 9.99 because she knew she'd go down to the 2.99. I can't get that. Well,
0: then maybe I'll get that. And that's even more than what I was expecting. So a win. Mm -hmm. That kid's genius. I know. I'm going to be left in the cold. You're in trouble, Mama. Oh my gosh, maybe if I start talking to her like this, absolutely not. Don't
2: be utterly ridiculous. Then she'd actually take
0: me seriously. What do you think?
2: When Downton Abbey was on TV, I would walk around the house talking like this all the time. And Micah goes, I know you think you sound like one of the upstairs ladies, but you sound like Mrs. Patmore. <laughs> So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. We'd like to give a big thank you to our assistant editor and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Ben Walding, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members,
0: for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.